So back into Proverbs last week, it was chapters 26 and 27 will be in 28 and 29 tonight, which would put us at that kind of schedule that next week would be our last week in Proverbs, but not I'm trying to, I'm, it's gone a lot longer than I anticipated, honestly. I thought we'd be able to kind of get through quicker, but I really think that chapters 30 and 31 each kind of deserve their own, their own week, just the way they're laid out, and so that's what, so we have two more weeks basically after this, God willing, as I said last week. So, but last week in 26 and 27, just to, a quick review, we talked about the fool, and we talked about this individual that starts out with this premise saying there is no God, and how that... Um, how that affects all their other decisions and all the other things that come into their life and the attributes we talked about such as being violent, divisive and that, that really graphic proverb that talks about the fool is like a dog returning to its vomit and we had that perfect example this Thanksgiving where my dog was so quick on the counter getting these big pieces of pork we had pork loin and she's grabbing these pork and then she would just swallow the whole thing and then the last time was she went in her crate, and we went in there, and she had thrown it up, and I guess she was saving it for later or something like that, but, it took, but to her, it was wonderful. You know, she had, I think she had the, the most food of any of us for Thanksgiving, but anyway, just, just so funny how that actually happened at our house, and, and my dog did that. We talked about Nabal, this character in the Old Testament whose name means the fool, and a man who was very successful in this life, a man that was rich and had great herds and had this beautiful wife, Abigail, but just what a fool he was and how his mouth was going to get him into so much trouble and how his wise wife, Abigail, this amazing woman who was humble and contrite, who brought sacrifices and interceded for her household and made peace. We revisited really briefly the sluggard, you know, this lazy guy that has these other consequences. We talked about that, that famous proverb, iron sharpens iron, which speaks to the value of fellowship, even when the sparks are flying. We talked about this iron clashing and, and how that sharpens us, and, and even when fellowship is difficult, how it benefits us. Contentment, industriousness, tending flocks and herds, God's provision, these were some other things that we talked about. So, Another review, a few weeks ago, we spoke about the godly household. I don't know if any of you guys might remember some of that, that, that the, the characteristics of a godly household, a wife, excellent wife, like a crown, like a graceful garland. We talked about a righteous husband that would lead his, his, his family as Christ leads his church. Children submitting to parents and parents investing in their children so that they can grow up and and the admonition of the Lord. And finally, our households being a blessing and a witness to our communities and how that all those things played out. And that was back um, in chapters 12 and 13. Similarly, these chapters, 28 and 29, we're going to be talking about the characteristics of a godly land, the land, a nation, a community, if you would, but, but a godly kingdom and what that looks like, a righteous kingdom, its rulers, its citizens, its priorities and purpose. And we studied some of these themes and characters before, but this time it will be in the context 
of, of that, of, of the realm, of a society. What a prosperous and ultimately free and loving society should look like. And what happens when a society abandons God's word and descends into oppression, violence, and fear. And really the temptation for me in studying these, and I'm sure for all of us, is to take these verses and to apply them exclusively to the United States of America. And I've tried really hard not to do that because Solomon did not write Proverbs with America in mind, right? I think we agree on that. This is, a, this is an ancient culture. What I will say, these principles apply to every kingdom under heaven, every nation, tribe, and tongue. That said, as we go through it, it will be very evident how far we as a nation have gone down the road of a society in crisis, a land that is in need of justice and healing. And I'm going to start with this first verse. It's in Proverbs 28, verse 1. It's one of my favorite memory verses. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. And regardless of the society or culture we find ourselves citizens of, this is God's mandate for us, his children. So if you're in the United States, if you're in China, if you're in Russia, if you're in Bulgaria or whatever other, Costa Rica, whatever other country you're in, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. To not flee as prey. We are not prey in times of persecution or ridicule, but to stand in the confidence of faith, to have courage as a lion. We've talked about lions a couple times in Proverbs. It's this, it's this symbol, and it symbolizes a few different things, but to have courage as a lion who has no natural predators. Man being the only real predator of a lion. They have no natural predators. Sean has been teaching through the book of Acts, and last week he began to teach on Stephen, the church's first martyr. This man that was selected, a righteous man, he was selected to serve tables, essentially. But what we find is he was an extremely spirit-filled, learned man. And we see him facing his accusers with that type of boldness, with that boldness of a lion in humility and truth. The men that's mentioned that he was debating with are men from some of the highest centers of learning in the ancient world, Alexandria and Cyrene, and these regions that were known for their, for their great learning and their philosophy, and they really were the pinnacle of that type of thing. These are the men that Stephen was debating with, men more esteemed than him, men more educated than him more powerful than him, but it was God's wisdom, God's word, and the empowerment of his spirit that proved irresistible, and that made them furious. Do you remember that in that account? We also remember Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, these three men that had been taken to the kingdom of Babylon who were faced with execution if they did not worship the idol you know, in 
basically King Nebuchadnezzar's image. They were going to be thrown into an inferno. But they chose that rather than to deny, deny their God. That's that boldness as a lion. Daniel walked into a den of lions, became a lion himself. Think about that. He went in there, and they became his friends. It says that God shut the mouths of the lions. They saw him, what I see, is perhaps one of their own. And God protected him in that. But look at Daniel's courage to go into the lion's den. And he trusted in the true lion, the Savior of the world, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. And we also we see over and over again in the book of Acts that legendary boldness of Paul, a great lion in the faith. And that's our call, to be that, have that type of boldness. Now, none of these guys fought their oppressors. None of them resisted what was happening to them. They entrusted themselves to the Lord, Stephen included. They submitted themselves to their fate and left their lives in God's hands. That's a template for us as citizens of whatever culture we're in. But let's make it real I think the temptation for myself and for perhaps others is that it's this fight that's like a defiance, a rebellion against that. And that's, I don't think that's what Stephen's doing here. I don't think he's getting into a fight with these guys to try to prove he's right. And the reason I say that is he's it's coming, I, I believe, because he's so much like Christ in this when he prays for their forgiveness as he's being stoned, it's rather his, his boldness comes from a love for those people that he's debating with. It's not from an anger or a defiance or an argumentative nature. It's coming this from, he, from a passion to see them saved, a passion for their lives, a supreme love for others, even above that of his own life. So I think there's, we all know this, right? What would we do for our loved ones? There's no greater motivation than love. And then when we have that kind of sacrificial love for somebody, that's where that kind of boldness is going to come from. That's the boldness that we saw from Jesus Christ himself. So it's not a rebellion. It's not this adversarial thing. It's I'm not going to waver from the truth because if I do, that might send you to hell. If I compromise in this, that might send you, that might cost you your eternal life. So I'm going to maintain that lion-like boldness in this situation. So I think that's our mandate, whatever culture we find ourselves in. But now let's look at a leader. We talked about, with our households, we talked about the husband's role as a leader. A land also needs direction. And the priorities begin with leadership. So these two chapters talk a lot about a ruler, a ruler. Now, whether that's a supreme ruler or some lesser official, but let's just start in in verse 2. When a land transgresses, it has many rulers. But with a man of understanding and knowledge, its stability will long continue. So we're told when sin increases, so do laws and the means to enforce those laws. Right? That's kind of the more sin, the more laws, the more laws, the more sin, it seems like. Right? It just keeps going and going layer upon layer upon layer until eventually a government, a country can become like a prison state. We see that in some other nations. 
layers of laws, officials, governors, courts, jails, prisons, increasing instability and lawlessness. That's what happens when a land transgresses. But it says, but by knowledge and understanding, its stability is ensured. That can sound like education, programs, things of man's wisdom, right? If we have enough knowledge, if we have enough understanding, we can fix these things. But that's not the biblical definition of knowledge and understanding. Proverbs 2.6, and this, we, this verse we talked way back at the very beginning, was 15 weeks ago or something like that. Proverbs 2.6, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. See that from his mouth, his word. That's what that's talking about. It's not talking about just some random worldly understanding or education you may come up with. So it's the ruler that commits to hearing from the Lord that ensures the longevity and security of his land. So ultimately, we're talking about a leader that has true and abiding love for his people. Again, over that of his power or gain. And I think that's where we really see, when we see leaders that are really concerned with their people. Remember, we talked about Solomon's son, Rahab, or not Rahab, Rehoboam, that took over the kingdom from him. And he had that opportunity to show his people that kind of love and loyalty, and he rejected that. And because of that, the kingdom was split. Now, Solomon lost a lasting kingdom because he quit listening. Solomon quit listening after this great anointing that he had. There was a time in his life where he had quit hearing from God. And this is what the prophet came to Solomon and said in 1 Kings 11, 11. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice, talking about idolatry and all the other ways that he disobeyed God and thought that he knew better than God in these times. It's, just, it's, just, it's a really hard thing to comprehend because we're studying his writings. He knew what was right in his heart. But this is what the Lord said. Let me continue. Since this has been your practice and have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. And I'm sure that was a great blow to Solomon. That servant was a man named Jeroboam. And Jeroboam had been the foreman of Solomon's uh, workforces and was responsible. He was over a lot of men. As a matter of fact, it was Jeroboam that led the people to Rehoboam in, in that account I was just recounting where they came and were trying to negotiate. It was Jeroboam that was leading those men at that time. But that servant, that, that, that prophecy is talking about Jeroboam. And this is what the prophet said to Jeroboam, Solomon's foreman. If you will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways, if you will listen, see, if you will listen and do what was right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David, my servant, did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David and I will give Israel to you. That's such an amazing promise. Think of all the great promises that God gave David. And essentially, God is saying, I will do that for you, Jeroboam. 
I will make you a lasting house, a lasting kingdom, if you just listen to me and are faithful to me, a sure house. He's promising him stability, prosperity, and God's blessings in perpetuity. Per, I can't say that word. Forever. <laughs> Let's just say forever. Can someone say that word? Perpetu- perpetu- yeah, I can't even say it, but you, got it. you had it. You nailed it. Forever. Forever and ever. Without end. Yet he also failed to believe God and taking matters into his own hands by a very logical means. When I hear what Jeroboam did, I think that makes perfect sense in the world's eyes. And we'll get into it. He built a counterfeit idolatrous altars. He built a couple of them that drew away the people of Israel, which caused the loss of his kingdom and all of God's promises. See, he was worried. He got those promises. He got the ten tribes. He was in control. And he said, but I'm worried that the Israelites still have to go back to Jerusalem to worship at the true kingdom. And I'm worried that when they go back there, that their, their hearts will be turned back to the Lord and they'll leave me and they'll leave my kingdom. And so I'm going to set them up some places that are closer for them to go to. And he set up these two altars so they wouldn't have to go all the way back to Jerusalem. And those altars became this stumbling block for all of Israel. And they eventually went into slavery because of that. Proverbs 28, 14 through 16. And this is kind of jumping down. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. But whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Like a roaring lion or a charging bear is a wicked ruler over a poor people. A ruler who lacks understanding is a cruel oppressor. But he who hates unjust gain will prolong his days. So just like with Jeroboam, with Solomon, a key part of hearing from God is repentance and confession. It's not about perfection but about learning from mistakes and being willing to change. I think Solomon had a lot of those opportunities to repent before it came to that thing where God said, I'm tearing the kingdom away from you. I think Jeroboam had those chances to not harden his heart and allow his kingdom to fall into calamity. We're told that someone who fails to repent, and we're talking about leadership in this point, Someone who fails to acknowledge their own faults becomes hardened and becomes hard in their rule. When you're hard in your heart, you're hard towards others. A roaring lion looking to devour. A charging bear looking to maul his populace. Looking to feed on them instead of blessing them and feeding them. Now both of these images speak of someone primal and unhinged not in control of their faculties. And this is usually a sign of the end. A companion verse to that is in Proverbs 29, verse 1. He who is often reproved, yet stiffens his neck, will be broken beyond healing. Stiffening his neck, rebelling against that correction. And we've seen that kind of, that picture before. And this is true for us individually but it's also true for nations and leaders. And there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of tales of failed leaders 
whose reigns were defined by cruelty at the end of their rule. Alexander the Great was magnanimous and merciful in the beginning. His people loved him. His troops loved him. The people that he conquered often loved him. But in the end, he resorted to cruelty and genocide, even killing Black Cletus, which was one of his closest companions, someone that had been with him from all of childhood, he ended up killing him in a fit of rage. We may uh, remember the cruelty of the Spanish Empire against native peoples, but also against the Jews, against their own populace during the horrific Spanish Inquisition. This cruelty is not limited to physical torture or imprisonment, but in financial policies that also devour their people. And on that note, Proverbs 29, verse 4. By justice, a king builds up the land, but he who exacts gifts tears it down. Now, justice or exacting gifts, right? We have to build up or to tear down. Exacting gifts... Some of you, I don't know how that's translated. That's in the English Standard Version. But that literally means heavy taxation, burdensome taxation, where the taxes get more and more and more and more, and it begins to tear down a society. Ironically, it is often with the intent or the promise of building up, of improving and investing in things like schools or infrastructure that taxes are increased. Right? I think we all know that in our community. Even here now, we've had some of those things. Again, don't want to make it about our locality or our country so, so much. But in reality, the Lord tells us that burdensome taxation will be the ruin of a land. It's unsustainable, and compulsory taxes are never a substitute for policies and leadership that promotes individual success individual responsibility, prosperity, and most importantly, freedom. Again, I don't want this to be a political study or diatribe. I'm really walking the line here. But we have to look at our founding fathers, and it was a much different world back then, I know. But I was researching a little bit. Their average tax rate was about 1% to 2% of what they made. And that broke their backs to the point where they started a revolution. It was 1% to 2%. Think about the levels of taxation we're faced with today in our country. Income tax, property tax, sales tax, gas tax, car registration fees and taxes. Taxes and fees on all of our utilities and cell phone bills. You know, you get your bill and there's like, there's your bill and then there's the total down here, and they're wildly different. And if you look, there's all these fees and taxes and things that are piled on top of that, right? Our actual cumulative taxes are closer to half of our income. It's tyrannical, and it's ultimately unsustainable. And that's just the truth. Yet Jesus tells us simply, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So we, by faith, like those lions that we talked about, with boldness, we pay our taxes, we obey Jesus Christ, and we let all that stuff work itself out. God's able to empty the, the windows of heaven and bless us if need be in our obedience. So we don't need to fear, that, to, to fear that, but to recognize 
that Proverbs is saying the end of that policy is not good. And we all see that. As we obey him and honor him, they can take and take and tear down, and we don't have to fear. Yet we are never torn down in the Lord, for we are founded on the rock, that strong tower of faith, confession, and obedience, which Jesus told us no storm can prevail against. Proverbs 29, 12 through 14 says, If a ruler listens to falsehood, all his officials will be wicked. The poor man and the oppressor meet together. The Lord gives light to the eyes of both. If a king faithfully judges the poor, his throne will be established forever. So here we see that contrast of the environment or the culture leadership will foster in its people. We see a ruler that encourages, encourages dishonesty, slander, and strife. He fosters this environment of dishonesty and wickedness. Of counselors and officials that were flatter and lie to gain advantages. Who serve only for selfish gain. All, and it says all of his officials. And I think that's interesting too. All of his officials. It becomes, it becomes this pervasive culture of dishonesty and deception. When a ruler allows that to define his, his reign. It's like that weed-choked garden that we've learned about. It cannot prosper and yields nothing good or valuable. That's not an environment where, where righteousness can thrive when a ruler allows that to define his, his government. Now we compare that to a ruler that is just and truly concerned with the poor. So politically, that's kind of this thing that everybody claims to be concerned about the poor. But who is truly concerned with the poor? Faithfully judges the poor, is what he says. His throne will be established forever. So that's not one who encourages dependence or sloth. Right? Those aren't good policies for the poor. That's not judging the poor righteously but rather one that institute policies that reward and incentivize hard work and innovation. That's what we see in Proverbs, right? Diligence, innovation, hard work. Those are the things that God honors. A ruler that institutes those things is one who faithfully judges the poor, who gives them a chance to thrive, a chance to better themselves. And our country is rife with those types of examples. That's something America has been known for since its founding. A land of opportunity, as it would be. And that may, be, that may have changed. A ruler that creates a culture of unity, not one of class warfare. One who encourages the poor to excel, not one who greedily feeds on their failure. So we have that other idea that, that if, if this leader can keep those people poor and desperate, then he gains power and advantage. That's not godly. That will be the ruin of a people. So whenever we see those types of policies instituted, they may sound compassionate on their surface, but we have to say, what is that, what is that leading to? What is that going to um, allow a society to, um, to grow into, even, if you would? 
you know, all these things have kind of a logical conclusion. So again, we're just going through Proverbs. I'm not a politician, and I hope that no one gets that impression. We're just going through God's word, but what we see is that land. Is it healthy? Is it sick? Are these policies good for the land? Or are they bad for the land? And anytime we see land in the Bible, I think we need to also understand that there's that agricultural similarity. So what's good for a land to grow things in, right? We have to prepare the soil. We have to fertilize. We have to work hard on it. That's the same for the figurative land of a nation. Now we're going to get into kind of the people, the citizenry, the populace of that land. And it says in Proverbs 28.10, so we kind of go back up to Proverbs 28. It says, whoever misleads the upright into an evil way will fall into his own pit, but the blameless will have a goodly inheritance. So we talked about that individual mandate to be bold as lions. And I think this is a mandate for godly rulers, right? To, to how, are they, how are, they, are, they, are they leading into an evil way or into a blameless way? To be blameless, to obey the laws that they administer. So that's still kind of about a ruler. I know so we're going to get into the people, but to lead by example, to foster that type of society that rewards righteousness, But we're told those who promote evil, who lead by deception and ill will, only inherit the very pit of their own making. I think that speaks for itself. Proverbs 28, 12, When the righteous triumph, there is great glory. But when the wicked rise, people hide themselves. This is the theme throughout these two chapters. The wicked rise and people hiding themselves. And a land will have what this is saying, a land will have glory when it's ruled righteously. But in the proliferation of wickedness, there's fear and darkness with its people in hiding. Another verse that says essentially the same thing, Proverbs 28, 28, when the wicked rise, people hide themselves. But when they perish, the wicked increase. So this thing of wicked, the wicked rise, the wicked rise. I think we understand that. We get that picture when they come into power and authority and influence. But it's when they are nurtured through oppressive policies that incentivize evil and cause the righteous to fear and hide. You know, weeds grow where the soil is barren and hard. That's generally the way it works. So a good example of this, I think, is... You might remember China had this policy, and I'm not sure if it's even still in place. I didn't look this up. But that one-child policy. Anybody remember that? And all the terrible things that that caused. They incentivized the killing of children in an effort to curb population growth. They caused righteous people to hide their newborns, to hide their pregnancies, out of fear of the government, of what would happen to their children. And that reminds us of when Pharaoh ordered the killing of all male Hebrew children in Egypt. So that's an that's a extreme graphic example of like the government instituting the wicked rising. They're becoming this, this group of people that are fine with infanticide, And it causes those people who love their children, who value life, to hide. 
We saw the same thing in Nazi Germany. We saw this regime that came to power where really the people were kind of oblivious, but they went along with it, and it caused the Jews to hide. A very literal example. To hide in fear of their life. Proverbs 29.2, When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. So again, it's this contrast between rejoicing and groaning, resulting from either righteous or wicked rule. Groaning here speaks of being overburdened. And it's like the, we're told that the very creation groans under the burden of sin. Think of a beast of burden just being overloaded and groaning under their burden. Yet our Lord hears the groans of his people, and we can trust in his deliverance. Psalm 12 details a society that has departed from God's word and embraced dishonesty, unfaithfulness, and lawlessness. And this is Psalm 12, verse 5. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. And that's what we hope in, in a society like that. We also remember the time when God called Moses to lead his people to freedom from slavery. He says in Exodus 6-5, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. And that covenant that he's referring to was one of freedom, of deliverance, of promises, and of eternal life. And it was promised to the children of Abraham, whose children we are when we come to Christ in faith. Proverbs 29.16, When the wicked increase, transgression increases. That makes perfect sense, right? When there's more wicked people, there's more sin going on. When the wicked increase, transgression increases, but the righteous will look upon their downfall. It's this admonition for the righteous to have hope, to pray and wait on the Lord and not be discouraged by the sins we observe in our culture. And one of my favorite verses, Isaiah 25, 9, says, On that day, on that day we assume when the Lord returns and makes all things right, on that day it will be said, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. That day will come when we see deliverance. Proverbs 29, 25 through 27. A little bit of a shift of gears. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Many seek the face of a ruler, but it is from the Lord that a man gets justice. An unjust man is an abomination to the righteous, but one whose way is straight is an abomination to the wicked. The fear of man is certainly a trap for us individually. It is even more so for a ruler or a leader. Our personal compromise to sin often has wide consequences, unpredictable consequences. We sin over here and the effects are over here. How much greater when a land 
is the same way. When we compromise as a, as a nation, and what will the consequences of that be? How many more people and lives does that affect? The extent of damage is undoubtedly greater. It's perhaps the greatest cause of compromise or capitulation to evil and something we should all guard against. And I really think this is something we really need to pray for our leaders about. I think it is the main thing that causes these guys that have great intentions when they go into office, when they go into leadership, and it's that fear of man, that desire to fit in, and we see it over and over and over again in the Bible, and it's so seductive, and it's so, we, we are all fall tempted to it. I mean, we all fall uh, victim to it, but um, I think for these guys, it's, it's especially difficult it was for fear of man that King Saul disobeyed God, offered profane sacrifices, and lost his kingdom and was plunged into madness. It was for fear of man, like we talked about earlier with Jeroboam, that he made those golden calves for Israel to worship, which eventually led to the defeat and enslaving of all the northern tribes. It was for fear of man that Pontius Pilate condemned Jesus to the cruelty of scourging and crucifixion despite believing in his innocence. Pontius Pilate knew Christ was innocent. He wanted to release him, but he was afraid of a riot. He was afraid of the consequences of this, of this group of people, and he killed the Savior of the world. He tried to wash his hands, but that blood did not come off. We can only look to God for true justice, not from the favor of the world or its rulers who are passing away. That's that back to that verse where it says, many seek the face of a ruler, but it's from the Lord that a man gets justice. We might remember that the apostle Paul appealed to Caesar. And that was God's will for Paul. Paul wanted to, God wanted Paul to testify in front of Caesar but he eventually was beheaded by Caesar. He appealed to Caesar. He didn't get justice from Caesar. He was executed by Caesar. But Jesus Christ, the just and the justifier, has crowned him and all like him with that imperishable, unfading crown of glory. The Lord bestows perfect justice and perfect peace. This last verse tells us simply that we don't see the same way as the children of this age. That there's an inherent conflict between the children of God and the citizens of God's kingdom. It's, you know, where it says that when we're righteous, that's an abomination to the wicked. And when we look at the wicked, we see them oftentimes as an abomination. We're not going to see the same way. But not to fear not to be overwhelmed or discouraged, but rather to live a life of gratitude and love, a life of forgiveness and mercy. It's okay if the world sees what we're about as an abomination. We're also told that if we persevere, if we do what's right, if we hold our witness fast, if we stand true like Stephen, that martyr, that it will have an impact. 
that they will see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. That's also a promise. Don't get caught up in those little things. Don't get caught up in how we're being perceived. Hold fast to the truth, and God will work those things out. That's what we're promised. The Apostle Paul would write that we need to bless those who persecute us to bless and not curse. That's how we prove to be his offspring. I'll pray. So, Lord, we... Man, that's, that is such a hard mandate. We see these things in our culture, and I know as we read these things, we see and we know all the wickedness that goes on in our country and in the rest of the world. I pray for us. Let us be the lions you want us to be, the lights you want us to be, to not walk with pride, to not walk with um, anger or frustration even, but to look to our own hearts and our own lives to maintain that relationship with you so that you would be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys.